0: The city needs to change, the city needs to to become more child-friendly. Part of that is transport, and part of that is the dominance of the car. So it's kind of a catch-22 situation where we've built these residential areas on the outskirts of our cities, which rely on private car. And then that increases traffic in the city centre, which then makes it less attractive for people to live in the city centre. So you've got this loop, which is pushing people out of the city centre, particularly pushing families out of the city centre, and it's changing the nature then of our cities. My name is Kieran Ferry, and I'm an architect in private practice. I'm also involved in the From the Exchange creative community and in a number of other not for profits and so on, Ava Housing, and uh, I'm also quite active in cycling advocacy in Dublin.
1: Kieran Ferry is an architect with an eye to the road as much as the built environment. I mean, he's very well known for his passionate advocacy and activism for a cycling safe city. And Kieran is one of the founders of what started as a Walia project and is now Ava Housing, a not-for-profit scheme to allow older homeowners to reshape their family-sized homes and create new rental space. Now, Kieran's also a co-founder of Funbully Exchange, the creative co-working community in Newmarket. And Newmarket's a really old quarter of Dublin City, undergoing major development with new hotels, student halls and offices popping up. I mean, Teeling Whiskey is just around the corner and it's pulling in over 100,000 visitors a year. I'm Helen Shaw and you're listening to This Is Where We Live, a podcast series about shaping Great places to live, and architects have a particular insight into how we do that. So, I wanted to hear Kieran's perspective on all that change happening just outside his window. But, Kieran, before we get to that, tell me a little bit about your own story. Where did you grow up, and you know, where's your own sense of home?
0: Uh, I grew up in Galway in a, a village called Menlo which is about three miles outside Galway City so it was quite a rural area uh, when we were growing up with a mix of i mean we were we were blow so we were kind of probably the beginnings of the suburbanization of that part of of the the city so um, but we were as I said only three miles from Galway City so we were felt very much connected to that as well so it was kind of a, a nice balance of the the rural life and the and the urban experience as well and then I moved to Dublin in 1990 to study architecture and apart from a few sojourns abroad and a brief uh, stay back in Galway. I've been here ever since. So uh, I'm living in Dublin now longer than I ever lived in Galway at this stage.
1: And in some ways, you know, you've seen from the 1990s to today that cycle of change, boom, bust and now where we are again with lots of cranes all over the city and where we are in your offices here in the open plan in, in Fumbully Exchange. We're in a part of town which has seen such incredible change in in the last decade in terms of new market. We have a new hotel across the road, the Aloft, student accommodation, Mm -hmm. Tealings Whiskey around the corner. It's rapidly changed. I mean, do you have a sense that this place where you're actually sitting in and based almost tells a story about the changing face of Dublin?
0: This area is part of the original liberties of Dublin and so it was always an area of industry. I first started working in this area actually in the I suppose around the mid-90s as a student I was working for Maria Lear Architects um, who were based here and at the time there were very few other businesses around here and it it didn't really feel like part of the city I mean it felt I suppose like the original liberties that it was on the outskirts that changed I mean during the boom times you know things picked up here and and the place got busier there was more development and then suddenly obviously in, in around 2010 everything collapsed again and that, that was the t- that was the point where Fumbly Exchange started up. So we set up, named after Fumbly Lane nearby. We set up in Fumbly Square, and it was really about helping people deal with the the fallout from the the crash and creating a space where people could come and and, and recreate their careers to a degree. But it was there was also a very important part of that was to look at. We recognised that the crash had a huge impact on the local area here and other local businesses that that relied on the the offices and other businesses here. So we felt that it was. This would help to actually bring that commercial life back into this area, and we think we, you know, we, we had some input in, in doing that. Um, but we, just early this year, in January, we moved back here, and the place really has transformed in the last five years since we've moved out and since we moved back, moved back again. The place has transformed completely. As you say, there's a large, there's a number of student housing uh, developments, there's hotels, and and thriving businesses around this area. So it's great to see that. It's great to see, I mean, having seen it when it wasn't so good, it is great to see that activity here. Although I can see that, you know, there are probably some concerns about the nature of of the developments that have happened here in that time when there is a, a huge housing shortage. While there is student housing built here, there's very little new housing built around this area. So that's, that's certainly an issue which uh, um, is of some concern, I think, to, particularly to the, the people, uh, the longer term residents of the area.
1: But yeah, probably that is the main concern in the areas is that while we see development in lots of cranes, that they're not actually maybe building places where people will settle and live.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I suppose there are some good examples in the area. The the timber yard uh, apartments on Cork Street are nearby. Um, And there have been other developments in the area which have been quite positive in in, in what they've done. I think the Weavers uh, Park has been a great development, a fantastic uh, design, a fantastic community for for, uh, the local area. And the recent redevelopment of st luke's um church as well for offices but with um the 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 landscape area around us which is open to the public as well but i think that there's 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 an issue in in some in some ways with the way housing is planned or residential is planned in in the city and it's not unique to dublin in that student housing is is zoned, I and it's exactly the same zoning as as building homes building uh long-term housing for people and for me, it's quite a different use. And it's not to say that we don't need student housing, but I think there is a certain amount of lack of control over the balance between student housing and longer term, more sustainable living, um, which I don't think has is been being, is being met in this area and in certain other areas in the city as well. And I think there is a case to be made that there should be a separate zoning almost for, for student housing. It is a very particular need that needs to be fulfilled. But when you don't have that distinction, when a site is zoned residential and there isn't that distinction between whether whether it should be for student housing or for more sustainable communities, the student housing is going to be more lucrative. So it's the more likely one that's going to be built, and then you have a situation where you're not getting the the more sustainable homes that was, that the area really needs. So I think that that's an issue certainly for planning. I mean, it's it's what's happened is as a result of. I suppose, a developer-led approach where a developer looks at the site, its own residential, they look to see what's the best return they can get on that. And at the moment, student housing is delivering on that. So that's what the market is is delivering.
1: Because it's also tax incentivized in that sense. So it's not just simply looking at it and saying, where do we get the most profit out of it? Because if you did that at the present, you'd actually say rental, because there's such a need for increased rental and that would, would help the rental market. But I suppose when we talk about student accommodation and as you say there's three blocks at least, and some really lovely pieces of work, like the, the the student accommodation at the back of the digital hub and the piece on Thomas Street itself. They're fine buildings and that but but I suppose we we do start that conversation by saying that this is policy led. It's tax incentivized yeah. as a developer to go in and fill that particular um, aspect within the area and i suppose it brings up that that aspect around what is a community
0: yeah i think so i mean the, the quality of the buildings is, is quite good i mean we're, we're looking out the window here at the buildings designed by share cleary architects which is a very fine student housing project but yeah it's, it's really a planning issue it's, it's about whether you know when you're looking at this area is, is the quantum of student housing here is that appropriate to the need in the area and is that balanced against the need for sustainable communities and, and more longer term living so I, that's where I think we're not quite hitting the right at the moment. I mean, there is obviously a need here. We do have Griffith College down the road. We have uh, TU Dublin, Kevin Street and Angel Street nearby as well. So, there, I mean, there, there obviously is a need for student housing, but it's about ensuring you've got a balanced development in an area like this, particularly in one that's developing so rapidly.
1: Give me a sense of what grew and what became Awalia and, in some ways, the thinking around that right. and how it's evolved to where it is now.
0: Yeah, well, in about 2014, um, the uh, Open House Festival, the Architecture Festival in Dublin, um, the theme that year was about housing. And in Fumbly Exchange, we decided we'd do a, um, an exhibition. And we invited architects and, and others to submit proposals to do a kind of quite a broad exhibition, sort of discussion and thinking about how we build housing. And the housing crisis was kind of becoming apparent at that stage. And for, for me, I mean, a lot of the discussion at the time was, you know, we've got a housing crisis building. We need to start building new houses. We need to start building new communities. And we need to do it quickly to to, to sort this out. And because I'd been working in these more established suburbs for quite a long time, I had a sense that there was a lot of underused housing in the, in those areas, kind of an untapped potential in it. And I did a bit of research on it, which formed part of the exhibition then, which was looking at particularly those more established suburbs, so the ones that were built between the 1930s and the 1960s. And what I found looking at census figures was that in in a lot of those areas, between 2006 and 2011, there was actually a falling population, where the the population in the country generally was growing and in the city was growing. In these established suburbs, there was a falling population. There was the the highest proportion of people over 65, so we had an ageing population, and also then there was a high proportion of unencumbered houses, so houses where the mortgage had been paid off. And this was kind of interesting. And I, I was overlapping these various statistics and, and started mapping these on the city. And they all corresponded to this, this kind of a crescent of suburbs from sort of Artane, and Chalester in the north that through Beaumont and uh, Kulag and Beaumont and uh, Cabra. And then on the south side from, uh, you know, including Drimna and Crumlin and so on and Rathfarnham. And
1: so, the original suburbs you might say yeah. particularly from the the fifties you well, know thirties, forties, 50s sixties, where the families had grown up exactly, and in yeah. many ways you were left with maybe one person or an elderly couple in what would have been the three bedroomed semi yeah,
0: you might have had say an older person living alone, or you might have had you know the 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 one sibling who had remained at home, so the parents have, have passed on and the the family have moved out, but there's one sibling who's kind of inherited the home by default. My conclusion or my my uncomfortable conclusion here was that there are a lot of single older people living in family size homes. You know, really, we should be looking to see if we can get them out and open up these houses for people to fit more people in them. And that was that was the. You know I, I wasn't proposing any solutions at the time um
1: no mass deportation of no the i domain. mean
0: i i mean my, the, the exhibition was just sort of drawing the the connection there and just saying there's this potential i wasn't i, I had no clear idea at that stage of how we actually t- uh, tap into that potential about two years later, then, the ESRI did a report which was looking at this very same issue and, and looking at, at the numbers of, of single uh, older older people living alone in family-sized houses. And they counted, I think, 160,000 across the entire country. And again, they came to this conclusion that we've got to introduce measures to encourage people to downsize or to, um, to sell up in some way. And, and to move out so they free up this space. And it was around that time then that Michelle Moore, uh, who is my colleague in AVA Housing, which was formerly the Ovalle Project, I suppose she came up with a solution. She said, well, we shouldn't be looking at this from the point of view of housing. We should be looking at this from the point of view of the older person who's living alone in a family home. So she looked at it from a, a health perspective. So our, our health policies are all about ageing in place and ensuring that people can stay living in their own homes for as long as possible. And she was saying, OK, how can we deliver something here which will allow people to stay in their home but will also allow them to rent out part of their home to other people uh, in a way that they're comfortable doing so she had done a bit of research on this she was um, talked to a number of, of groups and and i suppose found that while older people were generally open to the idea of renting out rooms in their house they weren't that comfortable say sharing a breakfast table with a stranger what Michelle came up with was an idea of you know how we upgrade the ground floor of the home, make that suitable for one person to live in on their own, have all the facilities on the ground floor, and then they can rent out the, the upstairs separately. She brought in um, Dharma Bannon and myself on this to help uh, with architectural advice and to look at the various, uh, particularly the statutory difficulties in terms of planning and building control and see how we could work around those and find a solution that could be delivered and in 2017 we entered a competition called homes for smart aging universal design challenge and there were i think over 60 entries of various uh, projects looking at how to help people stay in their homes and and, very, and and about kind of aging communities and and how to deal with this the demographic issue and we were shortlisted to the last 5 and eventually went on to win it outright and with that we got some funding which allowed us to do a pilot project so Late last year, we finished our pilot project in Clendalkin. So we have a a lady there who, that's the very same situation. She's in a three-bedroom, semi-detached house. She had been looking after her elderly mother, who's since passed away, and she was the only sibling left living in the house. And she was looking at downsizing in the area. She lives right next to Clendalkin Village and couldn't find anywhere that she was happy with and really wasn't that keen on leaving the house anyway. This is a house that had been their family home for for years, she'd grown up in it. You know, it was filled with a lot of memories. She had heard us talking about the project on the radio and got in touch, and um, very bravely decided that she'd put her name forward for the pilot. We looked at how we could modify the ground floor of the home to so that we turn one of the living rooms into a bedroom, put in an accessible bathroom, widen the doors, lower the light switches to the, the current standards. So you've got a situation where you're trying to upgrade the existing house as closely as possible to modern accessibility standards to make sure it's adaptable for someone as they grow old. Um, And then upstairs, very simply, I mean, if you can imagine a three bedroom semi-detached house of which there are tens of thousands across the city, you've generally got at the front of the house, you've got a bedroom and a box room, and then you've got a bedroom to the rear and a bathroom. So the bedroom to the rear and the bathroom were left unchanged. The bedroom to the front and the box room, we knocked them into one room, put a, a small kitchen in the box room, and there we have a kitchen, living, dining area for a renter. So now there's this, this a, a renter living upstairs in the house. Basically, they can, they can live autonomously on that floor. There, there's no They can interact as little or as much as they want to with the homeowner, but you know it, it's almost as good as, as uh, their own private apartment. They share the front door with the homeowner, so it's still a single-family home. The whole thing is entirely reversible, so it can still revert to a family home if needs be. But what it does is it means that the older person living on the ground floor... Has that comfort of having somebody else in the house with them? They're no longer living alone. It has that extra income? So if you've got someone who's on the state pension, they've suddenly got a bit of extra in- income, which can be their, you know, their travel fund or whatever it is. And uh, you're you're increasing the density of the area because you have set, uh, houses that were built for families of six or seven. Uh, you're now bringing more people into the area. You're redressing that demographic imbalance, the age imbalance. But uh, one of the the interesting things about it as well is that. when when we were looking and i was looking at these these suburbs so these suburbs are all very well served with um local amenities so they're you know they're established suburbs
1: schools shopping transport
0: exactly so they've got all these things so instead of having to well not instead of but i suppose when, when you're looking at the responses to the housing crisis which are about building new communities though you're building new communities you have to build all that infrastructure as well and that's a huge cost whereas here we have existing suburbs which are underused and which already have all these amenities in them, and which have very good transport connections. And if the demographic balance in, imbalance in those areas is not redressed, then you're going to have a problem where these services are uh, surplus to requirements.
1: So that sounds great, and that's your pilot. Mm. Um, how is it funded?
0: Well, we, we've been given funding by the government for by the Department of Housing for five more houses this year, which we're hoping to complete by the end of the year. But the long-term intention is what we're hoping is that the government will introduce a grant scheme to fund this kind of work. So, in the same way that there are grants for um, adapting a home for someone who has particular um, needs, what we're arguing is that this is really a preemptive version of that. We're trying to adapt people's homes before they need them, and, and we're. Upgrading the existing housing stock in the same way that, for example, the Sustainable Energy uh, Ireland grants upgrade the energy performance of the existing housing stock. So it's not just about, you know, giving money to people to do up their homes. We would propose that that grant would be mean test, means-tested as well. So it's not, you know, again, you're not giving money to people who can who can already afford to do this.
1: I can see the enormous benefits and rationale behind it. On the other hand, if that house then is sold. In the open market, you could have somebody who wants to reconvert it back to a large family home, yeah. and you then have you know such a loss in that. Is there any scenario or discussion around the fact that if there's state investment in this, that there will be guarantees of a length of period upon which it remains a multi-family unit?
0: Well, we've um, yeah we've set up a, a, an agreement between Ava Housing and the homeowner which uh, ties the homeowner into a minimum of three years. And and we've made it clear as well that this this should be a owner-occupied scheme. There are obviously some concerns that this could be exploited, and you end up you know subdividing houses all over the city, and uh, you'll have the whole uh, Airbnb thing all over Tenements again. Tenements come yeah. to
1: mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So the 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 notion that it's reversible is very important. But it's important to note as well that most of what we're doing is actually improvements to the house that that you wouldn't need to reverse.
1: What's your ideal outcome for that thinking that you and Michelle have shared around what has started in a while and is now, Eva?
0: We've never been too precious, I think, about the, the idea. And if if this is something that, that other people pick up on and it expands into, uh, you, know, th- you know, as I said, there's 160,000 old people living alone in family houses. There's a massive market here. Not everyone is going to want to do this, but we think that there's, there's potential for this to be hugely significant in terms of of improving the housing stock and creating that additional capacity in the housing. We're quite happy to to scale up and and take on as much of that as we can, but again, we're we're not being too precious about that if there are other companies who come in and, and decide to do the same thing.
1: In thinking about the bigger aspect around the city and how your project fits into it, you've probably had a sense of thinking about a whole range of ways in which we think about a city and making it work, particularly in a way a city where you might have a confined limit to it I mean we're in an environment where so much of our development is happening not just in the sprawl of County Dublin but in County Mm Meath and County Kildare. and County Meath I think you know 25% of all new house building that was listed in the recent stats are all in um, green fields around really closer to Drogheda than Dublin. Yeah. So in some ways, every time I see that and drive through it, I'm struck by the enormous effort we create then in building resources, schools, transport, beyond the fact that most of those people, whether we like it or not, are going to be car commuters Mm -hmm. in the current Mm -hmm. environment back into Dublin and this kind of catch 22 that we've created around the city where those those workers, those people need to get in here and often there isn't transport.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was thinking, as you were talking there about Galway in particular, when I was growing up, uh, when I was in, in secondary school in Galway City, a lot of my friends lived in the city. They lived in, you know, in, in terraced houses with no front gardens, right in the middle of the city, or they lived quite close to the city. And I get the sense that that that, that is reduced. I, I think that the population of people, and particularly the population of young families living in cities, is reduced. I think there's a fundamental issue here about making our cities attractive to families and you know the mayor of Bogota describes uh, children as an indicator species he says um, if children can play in the city if you see children in the city that's an indication that your city is working and you don't see it in, in Dublin you don't see it very often there are very few places in the city centre where you'd be comfortable letting go of your child's hand walking down the street you know there are parks which are great but to get people living in the city you, you, the, the city needs to change the city needs to, to become more child-friendly part of that is transport and part of that is the dominance of the car so it's kind of a catch-22 situation where we've built these residential areas on the outskirts of our cities which rely on private car and then that increases traffic in the city center which then makes it less attractive for people to live in the city center You see what this loop which is pushing people out of the city center particularly pushing families out of the city center and it's changing the nature then of our cities. Um, I'm very lucky to be living in Rathmines, where, where all the amenities are within walking distance, and you know, every, most of our neighbours and most of the people that we know, like my, my children's friends in school, they walk everywhere. So you you bump into people, and you have these, you know, accidental interactions with people that you don't have in a situation or in, or in a society where everyone is driving from A to B. So in in a place that you can walk and you can cycle safely, You're you're not just going from A to B. You're having all these other interactions, social interactions along the route as well. And it's also you know it's it's not just meeting other people. It's creating other possibilities for you know you're 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 walking down the streets. Oh, I must go into this shop. You know, it's not something you do when you're driving. You
1: keep the shops alive because you go to the local butchers, the local food market. It allows
0: you to do that. And you know we've I mean we haven't done a weekly shop in years. And I know we're fortunate because of where we live, but there is there has to be. a point at which at, at which uh, i suppose our behavior as, as a society changes and, and we we break away from the the reliance on the motor car because it isn't sustainable in all sorts of ways and i, I unfortunately i don't think ireland has quite got that yet I, you know we're still talking about you know spending 650 million euro to build a bypass bypass around galway which is expected to solve the traffic problems whereas you know any anyone who, who would look at it in any detail will see that it's actually going to Create more traffic problems. It's opening up more land for development, building more roads attracts more cars. It's not actually going to um, uh, free up the city, and at the same time, there's very little investment in public transport. There's very little investment in, in cycling infrastructure, and these are the things I think to to do. Those things, I mean, to to build the the, the cycling infrastructure and to prioritize public transport means taking road space away from cars. And until we reach the point where that becomes Accepted, I think we're we're never really going to solve this problem, and it's I think it's beginning to change in Dublin. I think um, the discussion about bus connects has been interesting. It's been very frustrating in that the the NTA have proposed to to widen roads, uh, and it's caused all sorts of problems and and a kickback in local areas because they're they're taking away mature trees, they're taking away front gardens, and the reason that they're proposing to widen the roads is that they can so that they can maintain car access as it is now and also provide public transport and cycleways really the solution has to be we reduce the car access we provide the bus access we provide the cycle access the safe cycling infrastructure we don't need to take away more space to give to transport within the city we just need to use the space that we have more efficiently and more effectively
1: And Karen, you you've worked abroad, you've talked about some of the places where you were working as an architect and where you've also lived. I mean, one of the things that we've been looking at in the discussion around Dublin and other Irish cities is almost looking out and seeing what's everybody else doing. Yeah, I,
0: I mean, you know, I suppose the Netherlands is is the, is the most obvious example, and um, it's the Netherlands is interesting because it's a very similar climate to, to what we have here in in Ireland, and they made the decision. I mean, the Netherlands was exactly the same as we were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. They were car, they had car clogged streets. They made a decision that they were going to take the cars out and replace it and put in proper like segregated, safe cycling infrastructure. Cy- cycling infrastructure that a seven-year-old could cycle on safely, that you could let them go and cycle to school. And they have huge numbers of people who cycle. I mean, uh, you know, they, they, it is the main mode of transport in most of the cities in, in there. And Copenhagen has done something similar as well. And it, they do have public transport and they do have cars. Um, they just don't use the cars as much.
1: So thinking about the city, because, you know, part of the challenge of, of the whole debate, this chicken and egg, the proverbial chicken and egg, because when you look at policy led decisions and we can have debates about what the, the National Transport Authority has done in terms of Bus Connect, in trying to accommodate both cars and public transport. But the reality of where we are is that as long as we get back to the point of as long as we're pushing people into quote unquote starter homes in County Meath, mm-hmm. and there's no train services and there's maybe an hourly bus service people are going to drive and when you do that then we have an environment where you know it's very difficult to almost resolve this as long as we continue to push people and have the sprawl philosophy this sprawl policy yeah. on housing where you know developers in so many of those areas are simply given the fields build and yeah. there's no thought about Well, actually, all evidence and all research will tell us is that possibly two thirds of those households will be both the members of the couple are driving back in and out of the city, Mm. Um, and that to me seems the difficulty where we are now is that you know you know there there are things we could resolve very quickly in transport, in thinking, and and in shift, in doing it, but the more we push people into this you know idea that the only place you're going to buy a house for two hundred fifty thousand is practically Drogheda or yeah. out beyond Maynooth.
0: And that's, I suppose, part of it. Like As you said, it's a chicken-and-egg situation. We, in order for the, the public transport system to improve, we need to provide more road space for the public transport system, or in particular for buses. And in order to do that, we need to restrict cars.
1: If you had the ear of those making decisions, what would you be saying, do you think, to to what you might say is the system?
0: Uh, Well, I suppose I think one of the big issues we have to face is our local government system, um, which I think is, I I think it's it's been documented that it is the most centralised in in all of Europe, so most of the power lies with central government. Local government has very little real power, uh, particularly local elected representatives have very little real power, they don't have huge budgets, and there's another issue which which is, is, is kind of maybe less popular, but I think that we we have a problem in that our local government county boundaries are based on these, I suppose, arbitrary historical counties, you know, let's call them the GAA counties, which don't really bear any reference to demographics or, or even geography in a lot of cases. So I would be certainly in favour of a radical overhaul of our local government system.
1: You know... While we make that case and while we look at the case for having the intrinsic decision making and, and increased powers at local level. One of the realities we're in is that local authorities across Ireland, not just in Dublin, have had the power to invest existing budgets in housing for the traveller community, mm. and yet we look practically universally a- across the, the the scale on this is that in some cases spending nothing to some in cases spending a little. Yeah. So the challenge of democracy at front face with the elected councillors and in a sense that challenge would also be there with an elected mayor is that we become even more open to what you might see as, as not in my backyard, mm. and mm. the idea that, you know, what doesn't suit a small community in one small corner of perhaps affluent Dublin will mean decisions aren't made for a disadvantaged community, which is what we've seen in South Dublin and Dunleary, Rathdown. Yeah. Yeah. So I get the whole idea of democracy at local level, but sometimes I put it back and saying the places where we've given power with elected reps is that they have been, in many cases, afraid to use it. Mm. And, you know, we look with this with almost particular horror at the most disadvantaged parts of our society, like the Traveller community.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that's coming as much from um, from national politicians as it is from local politicians. I mean, some of those decisions that, are, that were made in the down, for example, were, were driven by TDs. Uh, not necessarily by local councillors. So that's always going to be the case. But I think if we devolve power to local government, I think people will then take more interest in who they're electing at local government level as well. And I think that's an issue, that there may be a bit of complacency about local elections. You know, the turnout in some of the areas was extremely low.
1: Not just low, it was terrifying. I mean, in Finglas, in North Dublin, we were told the turnout in the local election was 15%.
0: In some areas, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I actually think that that's, in many ways, the largest and most significant red flag that we have a real crisis in local government. Mm. If only 15% of people in an area that needs so much, yeah. if they did not feel it was relevant or, or you know, in their interest to turn out, I mean, I actually am surprised almost that that just has faded again to the background yeah, about the, yeah. local, the local turnout, because you think... It suits vested interests that people don't turn out. And in some ways you think, you know, from the perspective of the poorest communities, we had the lowest turnout. And therefore, are they communicating with us that we feel local elections, local government and our local authorities have absolutely no impact on us?
0: Well, I think that's it. I think they just see what's the point if they, if, you know, if they're not delivering for the local community, you know, they're not. They're, if they're ineffective, you know, they're, they're, people are disengaged then from the process.
1: So, just coming back to the city yeah. and the challenge of the city. So, if you had to put that postcard into the minister or several ministers, since it, it, the, the brief would cross over a few of them, not just housing. What, what would be your postcard to Leinster House?
0: Well, I think I suppose fundamentally, we want Dublin to be a livable city. You want it to be a city that people want to live in, and people of all ages, and, and particularly that it would be a place where young families would be, would feel comfortable living in. So making um, making Dublin a city where you know you a seven-year-old can cycle on the streets, a city that has lots of publicly accessible green space play areas for kids and for teenagers that, that has public spaces. I mean, we don't really have large public squares in Dublin. I know the College Green proposal is, is, is on the, the, the cards, but we, we don't have those kind of spaces. And that's, that's what we need to see, I think, is, is to, is to if, if we can focus on getting the city working in that way, and it means reducing the amount of cars in the city. It means improving public transport. But most of all, it, mean, it means making the place more comfortable for people to walk and to cycle and for people of all ages to walk and to cycle around the city. And that's, you know, a lot of that is quite simple. A lot of that, you know, even things like changing the, the time periods on, on um, pedestrian crossings, putting in seating. I mean, we're seeing it in small areas, uh, isolated areas around the city. But if we can apply that thinking to the city as a whole, you know, I think that, that, that will change the dynamic. It will change how people perceive the city. I think there's still a certain, a certain idea that you know families should live in the suburbs. They shouldn't live in the city centre. I think that's wrong. I think you know any mature European city doesn't think like that. You've got, uh, you know, you asked about my experience living abroad, and I, I've, you know, I spent a number of months living in Berlin, and you know, it, it's it's a, it is a city where which has all those facilities. Which I mean, it's not perfect in in, in all respects, but it has that really strong demographic mix in, within the city itself uh, and, and feels like a really living city.
1: And when we talk about housing, partly we've been talking about like the quality of life within that we are in an environment where rental is rocketing. You yeah. know, the idea that a family um, a couple with one or two children can think about renting, let alone buying in Dublin on average wages. It's just not going to happen. Mm. I mean, in some ways, when you look at the housing scenario beyond what what we've been talking about, do you have a sense of what might be a blueprint out of it?
0: I've You know, I've, I've studied this question a lot and I've, I've listened to what a lot of people have to say about it. And it is I mean, it's it's there's no one answer to this. Um, it, it's uh, certainly I think there, we we need to build more public housing. I think there is a there's a lot of land in the city which is still in public ownership and We need to ensure that it remains in public ownership and we need to ensure that it's developed in a way that it can provide homes that people can afford to live in and afford to rent and afford to buy and i'm I'm not convinced that the local authority has the appetite to do that and i'm not convinced that the department of housing has the appetite for the local authority to do that either one of the hats i'm wearing I'm, i'm involved in the rat mines initiative which is a local community group And we're currently looking at a site which is known as the Gulliston Waste Depot, which is in behind the the town hall in Mine's. As part of a consolidation exercise, the Dublin City Council are consolidating their waste depots and and various um, services into one uh, central area, which means they've got this land becoming available, and it's owned by the Council. And what they want to do, initially what the Council wanted to do, or what the Council executive wanted to do was to sell this land to help fund their consolidation programme. Thankfully, the the local councillors have uh, one of the few powers they have is they can decide whether land can be disposed of or not. And they have um, said that they're not happy for this land to be disposed of, at least not until there's a very clear plan as to what's to happen with it. So we're, we're working with the council at the moment to see how that can be developed in a sustainable manner with predominantly housing that would deliver on demand in the area that would work within the existing context around mines um, would, would would contribute something towards trying to to make uh, affordable housing. I suppose essentially, and you know, we, we've seen recently where the uh, the council has been looking at the Vienna model, which is the you know, uh, cost rental, and there are other solutions like community land trusts or co housing, which is not the same as the co living, uh, which is a you know, which is a, a, a community led uh, housing development. So we're very interested to see how in each of those could apply in this area to see could we come up with a solution which isn't just a developer coming in uh, getting as much as many units as he can on the site and then flipping them for or or selling them on to a, a vulture fund we want to see are there solutions there which can actually deliver something which is going to be sustainable which is going to be affordable part of that may be that you know particularly just going back to the discussion about ava housing in Rath Mines, where you've got older people who are living in large family houses in the area that this might be where you could provide smaller houses for them that they could downsize but still remain in the local area.
1: And that's the architect and cycling activist Kieran Ferry there. And you can follow Kieran on Twitter, where he talks housing, cities and transport. You can find out more about Ava Housing at avahousing.ie. I'm Helen Shaw and you've been listening to This Is Where We Live, a podcast series from Athena Media. We've over 20 conversations now in this series. So find out more on the project on thisiswherewelive.ie. And if you like the idea of what we're doing, do please share the podcast. And consider becoming a supporter through Patreon. Just click on Support Us. Our thanks to our sponsors Happy Scribe, a great new tool for automatically transcribing audio, it really saves hours and hours of work, and to the Dublin Housing Observatory at Dublin City Council. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.